Colossians 3.16, this is the word of God. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, so if you're joining us for the first time today, we started a, uh, a series two weeks ago called Liturgy, uh, Why We Worship the Way We Do. And the reason why we're doing this sermon series is because uh, it's not only important for us to understand what it is we do uh, during this hour time, we sing, hear a sermon, confess our sins. It's not only important for us to understand what it is we do, Uh, But it's equally important, if not more important, to understand why it is we do what we do. And the reason why I say that is because I believe that the most important habit of the Christian life is our weekly Sunday worship service. And so it's really imperative for us to understand uh, what it is that we're doing during this time. So two weeks ago, we uh, covered the call to worship. Why do we open up our service this way? Last week, Brian talked about why we confess our sins. And today I'm going to talk about what we do for about 40% of our worship service, and that is singing. Uh, Why do we sing? Well, one interesting thing about uh, the world's major religions is that Christianity and Judaism are the two, uh, two of the only religions that actually require singing. Muslims do not sing. Hindus do not sing. Buddhists do not sing. They might chant, they might pray, but they don't sing. However, with Christians, we do sing. And if you take a look at scripture, there are over 700 commands on making music or singing. The entire book of Psalms is a hymn book meant to be sung. In Zephaniah 3, it's one of the few passages I know where it actually talks about God himself singing. God sings over us, and because we're made in his image, we're also called to be a singing people. And so what that means then is that the moment you become a Christian, you simultaneously become a singer. And so whether you have perfect pitch or not, we are called to belt out music to our God because our faith is not only intellectual, uh, but it's also musical. And so from the Old Testament to the New, God's people have always been a singing people. And one of the interesting things about uh, music and the church uh, uh, that's uh, uh, interesting is that whenever you watch uh, shows like The Voice or American Idol, seemingly every season, almost half the contestants uh, got their inspiration to sing from the church, whether it's being a part of the music team up here or a part of the choir They develop their uh, love for music from the church. So I'm going to take a look at three things today. Why do we sing at church? Who do we sing to at church? And number three, how do we sing at church? So why do we sing at church? Well, if you take a look at our verse again, it says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach one another through your psalms, hymns, and songs. So one of the primary functions of singing is to teach. Now we know that when it comes to preaching, there's a pedagogical purpose to it, a teaching purpose to it. But did you know that even in our singing, our singing serves a pedagogical teaching purpose behind it. Uh, Daniel Levinton wrote a book called uh, This Is Your Brain on Music. And Levinton is a professor at McGill University in Montreal. 
He was also the sound engineer for the Grateful Dead and Santana. And Levinton says that before there was a written society, what we had was an oral society. Now in an oral society, how do you transfer information? It's typically through stories. But it's not only through stories that we transmit information, but it's also through our songs. So what's, what was on everyone's Spotify list 1,000 years ago? It was songs about how to dig a well, songs about how to make shelter, songs about what plants to eat and what not to eat. And so songs have always been a very easy way of transferring information. How do you teach a kid 26 random letters? You don't just teach them A, B, C. You teach them a jingle, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And it's a lot easier to remember 26 random uh, letters. Uh, one of the things that I do for uh, my oldest daughter, Logan, I do it for my youngest daughter too, but my oldest daughter, Logan, I've done it every night for the past three years, is that I sing her a song before she goes night-night. And I sing her, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And so um, lately she doesn't like me singing it because I'm pitchy and she prefers mom. <laughs> but uh, but Im embedded in this simple, not simplistic, but this simple song is that as much as mommy and daddy love you, Jesus loves you more. Why do I say that? because the Bible tells me so. This is not just any random book, this is an authoritative book. Little ones to him belong. He made you, so you also belong to him, and you, you're supposed to have some kind of meaningful relationship with him because he's your creator. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. He's all powerful and he's sovereign. And so embedded in this simple song is a, a lot of information about God's love uh, for my daughter. And so what I'm trying to say is this, that singing transfers information, and therefore it shapes how we think, and therefore it shapes who we become. Now, I've never seen singing as a requirement in anyone's discipleship or mentoring program to become like Jesus. I've seen things like read books, pray, but I've never seen in anyone's discipleship program, you need to sing every single day. And yet it seems to me that if singing is a teaching method of the church, that it is something that we should do on a daily basis, not just when we gather here together on Sunday services, but something that we should do all the time. And the reason why I say that is because whether you listen to Beyonce, Bruno Mars, Hillsong, or Justin Bieber singing Hillsong, <laughs> music transfers information, it shapes how we think, and therefore it shapes who we become. So one of the reasons why we sing at our church is because uh, uh, the teaching component behind it. And therefore, whenever you take a look at the lyrics that we sing at our church, it's important for us uh, to sing songs that have robust lyrics behind it. And one of, the, one of the litmus tests for how we can choose the songs that we sing is if we didn't have the Bible and all we had were our songs, what would our songs teach us about God, about us, and our relationship to Him? Okay, so there's a teaching component behind it, but there's also a second component, and if you take a look at the verse again, it says that we are called not only to teach through our singing, but we're also called to admonish. Now, the word admonish is not a word that we really use anymore today, but it simply means to correct. 
Now, how do we correct one another uh, through our singing? How do we correct one another? Well, if you take a look at uh, the books of, or the letters of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the church in Corinth was in disarray. It was fractured. Uh, there was a lot of uh, disunity. And so what Paul does is he writes a letter to the church in Corinth. And in one of the verses, it says, I do not write these things to you so that you're ashamed, but I write these things to you to admonish you as my dearly beloved children. And so what Paul is saying is that he's writing these letters with the purpose of instruction and correction. And so in preaching, we do the same thing. What I'm doing is admonishing you. I'm instructing you and correcting you. Yet in this verse, it doesn't talk about writing letters or preaching, but it talks about singing and how singing is a way of admonishing uh, one another. And so how does this work? Take a look, look with me at the second song that we sung today. Um, o Come to the Altar. Look at verse 1 with me. And it says, Are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Look at verse 2. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Uh, Jesus is calling. And so what these two verses are doing, when we sing that to one another, what we're saying is, hey, if you're broken, if you're crippled, if you're hurting in any way, and you feel overwhelmed by the guilt and shame of your sin that you did this week, the past six months, the past, this, uh, the past year, Jesus is calling. Uh, leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Sometimes what we do is we bring our past mistakes to our present and to our future. And what this verse is saying is, hey, if you're living this way and you're beating yourself up because of the things that you've done, Leave those things behind. Jesus is calling. Cast your burdens on him. And there's no reason to wait to do this. So if you did, whether you knew it or not, when you were singing this song, you, we, were, we were inevitably actually correcting and admonishing one another to do these things. Okay, I'll give you another example. There is a very old contemporary song called Refiner's Fire. And this song, it talks about how if you have any junk or clutter or garbage in your heart, so whether it's lust or discontentment, envy, anger, whatever it might be, it says, purify my heart, cleanse me from my sin and make me holy. The chorus goes, refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. So when you sing that song, what you're saying is that we're called to purify our hearts. And the refiner's fire, God is the one that does that for us so that we are like pure gold. And so when we sing our songs to one another, we're not only correcting ourselves, but we're doing so for one another. Now there's a third reason why we sing, not only to teach, not only to instruct and correct one another, but the third reason why we do so, if you take a look at the uh, verse again, is so that the message of Christ can dwell richly within us. For something to dwell richly in you, it means that it makes a home in you. It inhabits you. It resides within you. And one of the ways for the message of Christ to make a home in you is actually through singing. When we sing, what we're doing is we are spreading a welcome mat for God's word to richly uh, dwell within us. 
And it, this, this verse not only says that we are called to have the message of Christ dwell within us and make a home within us, but we're called to have the message of Christ dwell richly amongst us, within us. And for something to dwell richly among you, it means that there is a abundance of something. And what that means is that when we sing God's truths, the word of God dwells more and more richly within us. If we don't sing, what we experience is a poverty or scarcity of the message of Christ or God's word uh, dwelling within us. And so I mentioned before uh, that I sing to uh, my daughter Logan, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, every single night. And because of that, even though she's only three years old, she's gotten to a point where she's actually memorized all the lyrics. And so when she puts her doll, Mr. Huggins, down to bed with her, she actually sings Mr. Huggins, Jesus loves me, this I know. It's like the sweetest thing you'll ever hear. Now, does my daughter know the God whom she sings to? No, she doesn't. Not yet. But what I am doing is I am planting the seeds of these deep truths within her mind, hoping and praying that in God's goodness and providence that these seeds one day will bloom into beautiful truths. So when you think about what, uh, what meditation is from a Christian perspective and an Eastern perspective, in an Eastern perspective, meditation is emptying your mind out. But from a Christian perspective, meditation is filling your mind up. And one of the ways that you can fill your mind with the deep truths of God, again, is to sing. And the hope is that as we fill our minds up with the deep truths of God, it'll trickle down to our hearts. And the reason why I say that is because the longest distance in the world is from the head to the heart. These 12, 15 inches are the longest distance in the world, but singing helps uh, expedite uh, the process. So John Newton, who wrote the world's most famous song, Amazing Grace, uh, once said, imagine you walk into uh, a room and you see your friend uh, engrossed in a book or working on their laptop feverishly, but you see a tarantula crawling up their arm and you say, hey, there's a spider crawling up your arm. And they go, uh-huh. And so you say, no, seriously, there's a tarantula crawling up your arm. And they go, uh-huh. And about two seconds later, they pop off their chair and they start brushing their shoulder off like crazy while they're screaming. Now, what was the difference between the first time you warned your friend and the second time you warned a friend? Nothing. You said the exact same thing. So what was the difference? The first time you told your friend the information, it just remained uptown. But the second time uh, you told your friend the information, it actually went downtown. And so one of the things that we are called to do when we sing is not just fill our minds up with information, but we want the information that is in our minds to also go downtown so that it changes us. And this is what we are called to do. Uh, one question that sometimes people ask me is how do you preach without notes? And first of all, I do. I do need these. I don't know what I would do without it. But you know what I try to do throughout the week is I, I do what Eugene Peterson said when he described meditation. And he said, a me meditation is when a dog chews on and gnaws on the same bone every day all week. And that is similarly what we are called to do. Now, in fairness, it's a little bit easier for me to do it throughout the week because it's my job. You have real normal jobs out there, and I understand that, but you're not off the hook. And the reason why I say that is because we are constantly filling our minds up with something. You know what worry is? 
You know what you do when you worry? You're filling up your mind with anxiety. You're turning up the dial on fear. You're turning down the dial on God's love for you. That's why you're worrying, because you're meditating on whatever you're anxious about. You know why we're discontent? Because we're filling our minds up with bitterness, envy, and regret. And we're turning down the dial on God's sovereign control over our life. We're constantly filling our minds. When you do, for you sports fanatics, when you do fantasy sports, you know what you're doing? You're filling your mind up with analytics, statistics, player's health, player's schedule. So clearly, we are capable of filling our minds up. The question is, are we filling our minds up with the right things or are we filling up our minds with the wrong things? I want to read you a quote from the first page of your bulletin. And I'm going to assume that almost all of you don't know who Jeff Hayes is because Jeff Hayes is just a normal, ordinary, average Christian who is writing a letter to his children and to some of his friends who consider themselves non-religious. He's not a pastor. He's not a famous author or speaker. Just an ordinary Christian like you and me. And this is what he writes to his children and some of his non-religious friends in a letter that he entitled, I Love Beer and Jesus. Consider the amount of alcohol we consume, food we eat, drugs we take, antidepressants we ingest, sex we crave, and money we spend trying to feed the void. I have never completely filled my void, and I have tried a lot of the void fillers I have mentioned above. The only time I have temporary relief from the void is when I am centered on God and serving others. When I am truly focused on God, my void diminishes, and I feel unbelievably whole. Since nothing else has ever brought me relief of the void, it leads me to believe that the void is a spiritual need, which ultimately leads to a creator. And so what Hayes is saying is that the reason why he fills himself up with the word of God more and more is because it's the only thing that can really fill, uh, as Pascal would say, the hole that is in uh, his heart. So why do we sing? Because there's a teaching component, admonishing component, and it's an easy way for the word of God to dwell richly within us. Now, here's the second question. Who do we sing to? Well, if you take a look at this verse again, it uses a very, uh, the last line, it says, sing to God. Uh, and that's the vertical dimension to our singing. Uh, but it also uses a phrase uh, that is pervasive throughout the New Testament, and that's found on the second line where it says to teach and admonish one another. And that's the horizontal dimension. Now, the vertical dimension is obvious. The horizontal dimension is not as obvious. But when you take a look at the New Testament, it uses the phrase one another over 40 times. It says to love one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, meet up with one another, and in this verse, it says to sing to one another, that when we gather together uh, as a body, uh, as a church, we're not only called to sing to God vertically, but we're also called to sing to one another horizontally. Now, why do we do that? Uh, I do like the quote, again, on the first page of your bulletin from a musician named Andrew Peterson. And in one of his songs called Shine Your Light on Me, uh, this is what Peterson says. It was the voices of the brothers at my side. They were singing out my song when the song in me had died. And what Peterson is saying is that sometimes when our faith is weak, what we need to do is to borrow the faith, the stronger faith, of the people that are beside us. 
And one of the ways that we can borrow the faith of the people beside us is through our singing. And so one thing that I want you to be keenly aware about is that when you gather here, it's not just about you and God, but it's about you, God, and us. Imagine for a moment if every one of us came into this room with the mindset that we are not only going to sing and bless God, but I'm going to sing and bless the socks off of the people within a five-foot radius of me. What if we came in with that mindset? How much of an encouragement and blessing could you be to the people that are around your vicinity without you even realizing it? When our church first started about one or two years ago, we had about 50 or 60 people, and back then I actually did another sermon on singing. And I'll never forget this because after the sermon was over, we, do, we always do a closing song, and there was a person, a visitor there that day, and I've never met them, I've never seen them again. But I remember as we were singing, she started singing uh, so loudly that everyone could hear it. And she had this beautiful opera-like voice. You could tell she was classically trained. And as she was singing, you can tell that she, I mean, she was filling up the room and it just, it literally just lifted us up to want to sing louder as well. It was inspiring because you can tell that there was passion, emotion, fire behind the words that she was singing. And similarly, as we sing, here in this room. We are not only called to do it vertically to God, but we are also called to horizontally uh, do that to one another. And we are called to also sing to God. Uh, prior to the Reformation in the 16th century, uh, whenever you walked into church, uh, everyone that gathered was a passive spectator instead of an active participant. And so prior to the Reformation, whenever you came to church, the choir would be up here and they would sing songs in Latin. The problem was no one, no one understood Latin. And so people would just listen while the choir would sing. And people would come and they would be sort of in awe of the drama of the mass. And so uh, the attire, the vestments, the bells, whistles, the incense, the fragrance. And so people would come largely for entertainment purposes in the 16th century. It wasn't until the Protestant Reformation where the reformers said, hey, uh, we're all the choir. We're not only called to listen, but we're, all, we're also called to participate in the worship service as well. Now, sim similarly, I would say that with the modern church today, sometimes we forget that the Reformation took place. And we sort of revert back to our old ways where we want to be entertained, where we just want to receive instead of participate. But what we are called to do is be active engagers uh, in our service with God himself because what our worship service is, is a dialogue. God speaks to us to his through his word, but we're also called to speak to God through our singing. And so this is an interactive uh, affair. Uh, years ago, uh, a pastor I know visited a church and an elderly woman right after the service was over came up to him and she said to him, how'd you like the service? And trying to be as polite as he could, he said, it was fine. And seeing that that answer wasn't particularly genuine, she pressed him a little further and she said, no, seriously, how'd you enjoy the service? And he said, to be frank, I didn't particularly care for the music. You know what her response was? well, it's a good thing we weren't worshiping you then. When we gather together, this is not about, I mean, I get it, we all have our own musical preferences. 
but don't let your distinct preferences and tastes prevent you from being a participant in our worship service. Sorry, it's not about you. This is about him. There is a vertical dimension for why we're here uh, and why we gather together. The worship leader, Matt Redman, puts it very well when he says, worship is always a countercultural event because our culture says, place yourself at the center, but when we worship God, he's in the center. Let me read us a third quote from Tim Challies on the first page of your bulletin. And Challies says, I am convinced that the best measure of a church's music is not what takes place on the stage, but what takes place in the pews. It is not so much the sounds and sights of a band leading, but the sounds and sights of a congregation worshiping. A church with a truly great music program is the one that could worship just as well on the day the power goes out and the instruments won't play. A church with a truly great music program is the one that generates far more sound from its raw voices than its amplified instruments. A church with a truly great music program is the one where the people sing, they really, really sing. So we talked about why we sing. We talked about who we sing to, the vertical, horizontal. Now, thirdly, and lastly, how do we sing? Well, if you take a look at our verse again, it says that the way that we ought to sing uh, is with gratitude in our hearts. Uh, and so we're called to have an attitude of gratitude when we sing. Uh, Bill Maher, the famous uh, uh, comedian and uh, political commentator once said, let's face it, God has a big ego problem. Why do we always have to worship him? And I can understand why he's coming, where he's coming from. But if Bill Maher was uh, at our church today, what I would tell him is the reason why we're called to always worship God. The, re the reason why we're called to be grateful is because of his gospel. And if you're not familiar with the gospel, let me, let me bring down theological terms into more pop cultural terms. I mentioned before, uh, two of the most iconic shows in our history are uh, The American Idol and The Voice. And uh, if you haven't seen it before, it's a singing competition. And it's one of the most anxiety-riven shows you'll ever see because all of these normal people come as contestants trying to be the next American Idol or The Voice. But one, one mess up, being pitchy on one line, being too sharp or too flat, one mess up can ruin your chances of becoming the next winner of the show. And after the show is coming to an end, on the last, last, last episode, uh, they pick one winner, and after he or she wins, what the host does is they shove a mic into their arms to sing again, their final song, except when they sing their final song, they can't really sing it because they're so overjoyed uh, to the point where many of them are in tears, and so as a result, when they're singing, it's, it sounds horrible, and most of the time, you know this, I mean, most of the time, they can't even finish the song. Now, when they're singing the final song, does their performance really matter at that point? No, it doesn't. The performance is over. The judgment is finished. They're now just singing out of gratitude and out of sheer love that they have won. You know what the gospel is all about? It means that the performance is over, that you're no longer judged by the way that you live your life. 
And the reason why the performance is over is because Jesus performed in our place. You know that in religion, performance never over. Judgment never stops. Irreligion, performance never over. Judgment never stops to get the worldly accolades that you want. But in Christianity, it is finished. And the reason why is because Jesus performed perfectly the life that we were supposed to live, but he also died the death that we deserve for our poor moral performance. This is the reason why when we sing, we sing about the life and the death of this person named Jesus, because he did everything in our place. And because of that, we are called to sing with gratitude in our hearts. One of the scariest depictions of hell in the Bible is that it is a place where there is no singing. The only sound, the only music that you hear in hell is weeping and gnashing and grinding of teeth. Whereas heaven is always depicted as a place that is filled with music and where every tribe and every tongue is singing praises to God. The two places cannot be more antithetical. But Jesus took the hell that we deserved so that we can get all of heaven. And so there should be a gratefulness in our hearts. Now, what does it mean to, what does it look like to have gratefulness in our hearts? Well, imagine it's your father's birthday. And uh, you, you're a little kid and you want to, you and your brother or sister want to sing to your dad happy birthday. You think your dad cares how well the performance is? Whether you're pitchy or, or too flat? Your dad doesn't care. The only thing that your dad really cares about is whether you really mean what you're saying and how happy you are when you're singing it. And similarly, I would say with God, does God really care whether you're sharp or flat? No, he doesn't. The only thing that he really cares about is whether you really mean what you're singing about. And is there gratitude and love to the person that you're singing to? Now, I have to confess as we close, I have done our church a severe disservice because I know that especially when, with our old location, whenever someone new walks into our church, the first thing that they do is they look for the pastor and then they look at me and they see that I'm like frozen chosen. I am not moving, I'm not exactly emotional, I'm not lifting up my hands. And you know why, you know why I look the way that I do when, I, when we're singing? It's honestly, it's because I'm thinking about the sermon half the time. You know the other reason why I look the way that I do? Sometimes I, I feel like if I close my eyes while I sing, I honestly think that I'm gonna fall asleep. And it's not because of the music, it's because I'm so sleep deprived. So I have to consciously open my eyes because that is how tired I am with the two kiddos that we have. And so I'm not really a good example of how to sing with an attitude of gratitude. <laughs> but you know what? I shouldn't be the example. I shouldn't be. And yes, my temperament has changed over the years. But I don't want to be the inhibitor for you to express yourself the way that you want to. And I don't want our church to inhibit you from expressing yourself to God, particularly in, our, in your singing, because singing is one of the best ways of connecting to God. Now, is it weird if you're like running around the room and dancing? Yeah, a little bit, and it's a little <laughs> distracting. But at the same time, I don't want to suppress whatever emotions uh, that you might want to give to God, because when you take a look at Scripture, uh, 
there seems to be a lot of physical language, whether it's bowing down, clapping your hands, uh, 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 lifting up your hands, I mean, shouting aloud to God. And it seems to me that uh, sometimes that the Presbyterian church doesn't get it right. And so when it comes to this, I do want you to feel freer uh, to worship God. And let me, let me just close with the words of uh, one iconic singer, Bono, on the first page of your bulletin, who I think summarizes this uh, point very well when he says, I try not to get to the point where I'm singing the song because that's a chore. I try to get to the point where the song is singing me because that's effortless. Worship is simply seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth. And he's worth a lot. And that's why we sing to him. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we are so grateful for the gift of music that you've given to us. Um, We thank you that you are a singing God. And as creatures made in your image, help us to sing with great delight. Uh, Sometimes when we look at the Psalms, our laments, Uh, Sometimes there's praise and adoration. Uh, There are so many different kinds of music, but music is such a wonderful, wonderful gift. And I know that we all listen to it on our commute to work and when we're at home or at the gym. And it is my prayer that as we uh, listen to uh, music about you and as we sing these songs about you, that the message of Christ would dwell richly within us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.